My name is Brad Cheney. I'm one of the pastors here along with, with uh, Brian and with Phil. And uh, we're in a sermon series taking us through the Ten Commandments today. Last week we looked at the preface to the Ten Commandments. Today we're going to look at the First Commandment, uh, verses 1 through 3 out of Exodus chapter 20. Before I read it, um, there was a fairly famous psychology experiment they performed on college students I don't remember, several years ago, they showed students pictures of people's mouths in various stages of decay. (laughs) And what they found is if they showed pictures of mild tooth decay and gum disease, it actually inspired the test subjects to be more conscientious in their dental hygiene. Uh, So they would floss more frequently and they would brush every day and, you know, do those kinds of things. But when they showed them pictures of super advanced cases of decay, you you probably could guess this, it had the opposite effect. The students ended up having worse dental hygiene as a result. Presumably, say, why is that? Well, presumably because it was sort of like a picture of hopelessness. And they uh, despaired of the condition. I don't know if that was one of those uh, social science experiments that they were able to replicate. Again, you know, social sciences have taken quite a beating in the scientific community over the last 10 or so years because they're not able to get repeatability, uh, uh, repeat the results using the same, you know, uh, test conditions. And so maybe that was bunk social science. But when I read that, when I heard that, I thought the results sound pretty plausible, at least so far as I understand my own psyche. Does that kind of sound like your psyche too? Um, If you show me a situation where there's this and this and this and this and this and there's just, there's so much, oh, this is terrible. I mean, I tend to shut down in those situations. I get overwhelmed. I kind of throw up my hands and say, well, what's the use? What's the use? I think that's one of the dangers of the larger catechism's treatment of the Ten Commandments. Now, I intend to include every week the larger catechism's, uh, uh, you know, their words on each one of the commandments because I think it is fundamentally very helpful. It is very helpful for us to see how our Puritan forefathers, who had really massive intellects, I mean, you cannot read this without walking away thinking, these are these guys are thorough thinkers, really thorough thinkers. And, and they, pro- they provide us a sp- perspective on the commandments. I think we would never reach on our own if we were left on our own. Um, it's very deep. It's very rich. But having said that, it can have the inadvertent ef- effect of overwhelming us and making us feel maybe even more guilty about all the ways that I'm breaking the commandments that I wasn't even realizing I was breaking it uh, to begin with. And, um, you know, you have this sort of, oh, I throw up my hands and say, what, what use is there even to try? You know, the Bible doesn't want us to have that response. And, and Paul doesn't want us to have that response. More on that in a minute. So let me read the passage. And then let me read the catechism. Exodus 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
And then what does the first commandment require? The first commandment requires us to know and recognize God as the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him as such by valuing, meditating on, remembering, highly regarding, honoring, adoring, preferring, loving, desiring, fearing, believing, trusting, hoping, delighting, and rejoicing in him. We must also be zealous for and call on him, giving him all praise and all thanks, completely obeying and submitting to him in our whole person. Finally, we must walk humbly with him, being careful to please him in everything we say and do, and being genuinely sorry when we offend him. I think you'd say that's, that's a very rich answer, is it not? Well, what particular sins does the first commandment forbid? <laughs> Quite a few. <laughs> the first commandment forbids atheism, denying or not believing in God, idolatry, believing in or worshiping any other gods along with or other than the one true God, not having and affirming him as our God, as God and as our God, failing or ne- neglecting to do anything this commandment requires relating to God, ignorance of him, forgetting him, misunderstanding him, untrue opinions about him, and evil or unworthy thoughts about him, irreverent curiosity about and inquiry into his secrets, all godless desecration, hating God, self-love, self-interest, and all their other disorderly or excessive, uh, sorry, I've lost my place, Attention, mental, willful, or emotional to things that divert our attention partially or completely from God. I mean, are these guys lawyers? (laughs) Also included are worthless beliefs, lack of faith, heretical beliefs, wrong belief, not trusting God, spiritual despair, refusing correction and resisting God's judgment, hardness of heart, pride, willfulness, worldly complacency, putting God to the test, using unlawful means to an end, trusting even in lawful means of grace rather than God himself, indulging in pleasures of the flesh, deprived, blind, or improperly directed zeal, being lukewarm, spiritual deadness, deserting and forsaking God. Um, And then it, it, it goes on. You say, when you read that, don't you say, wow, I had no idea <laughs> all of that you could get from the, from the seven Hebrew words of the first commandment. Um, there's, and and, and but you sh- what you shouldn't do, what you should not do, is throw up your hands and say, well, what use is there? I don't have any hope of doing all of these things. I give up. Because I said before, that's not the way that Paul wants you to hear the commandments. It's useful to dig deep, but that is not the way the Bible wants you to hear and relate to them. What the Bible says is that by virtue of the cross of Jesus Christ, he has set you free from your bondage to slavery and sin. Just like the people of Israel, he had set them free from their Egyptian slavery. He has dealt, he has dealt a death blow to sin on that cross And he has given you the Easter spirit, the spirit of his son. So that in Romans 8, verse 4, probably the most important verse, I would argue, about the way Christians relate to the Ten Commandments, relate to the law. Romans 8, verse 4, 
You've been given the Spirit in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, might be fully met in you who do not live according to the flesh, that is, according to the sinful nature, but live according to the Spirit. And so what he wants you to do as we go through this entire series and you hear the commandment, you hear that, you you hear it and what he wants is for your heart to kind of leap inside and say, yes, God, this is exactly what I want to do. And by your grace and by your spirit, this is what I am empowered to do. Like I have the spirit of Christ to do this, to have no other gods before you. Uh, And that is exactly what I want to do albeit imperfectly, oh, so imperfectly, but really and truly through the Spirit who is at work within us. Amen? Amen. That is it. And and that's what I I hope I'll keep bringing us back to in the series. I'm sure we have all seen a video of groomsmen at a bachelor party, or maybe we participated in one of those bachelor parties, where they've got the guy, they stand up and and they're kind of like, woohoo, you know, Bill, tonight is your last night of freedom. So we're going to have, you know, the great time because tomorrow it's going to be the ball and chain for you. But tonight is your, your last night of freedom. We've heard that before, right? Do you know what? No groom thinks that way. Like truly, no groom thinks that way because why would he enter into the covenant of marriage if if he thinks that he's just going to lose all of the the joy and the fulfillment of of freedom. Now, yes, of course, he has to curtail some of his personal freedom within the bonds of marriage. He restricts some of his liberties, but it's not so that he would live with a ball and chain. It's so that he would what? He would enter into a greater freedom as he lives relationally with this woman within the confines of this covenant bond that we call marriage. And isn't that what's going on with us and the the, the Ten Commandments, really? And the law? And we've been wedded to God through Jesus Christ. And we are to think of these these laws as the, the covenant laws of perfect freedom because they really lead us into the, the richest life that we could experience, we could hope to experience. All right, let's look at the first commandment right now. I said that it is, it is comprised of seven Hebrew words, and they literally are, if I can find it in my notes, literally he says, the first word of God in seven words is, there shall not be for you another God before my face. And right off the bat, what the first commandment implies is that there, there are other gods. There are other real supernatural beings that are inferior to Yahweh, but legitimate rivals against Yahweh, the true creator and redeemer of the world. There are other gods. Now, uh, you might, <laughs> that might um, make you kind of ask a question. Isn't the, isn't the Bible monotheistic? Isn't Judaism and Christianity monotheistic? I thought you know, the Mormon faith is polytheistic, but, well, yes, it's monotheistic, but with a caveat. What do you do with Psalm 96 verse 4? 
For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, which I think was our call to worship today. Uh, Or what do you do with Psalm 86 verse 8? There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. Or Psalm 135 verse 5. Our Lord is exalted above all gods. 97.7, he is exalted above all gods. Uh, 95.3, for Yahweh is a great God and a great king above all gods, and so on and so on. I mean, it's all throughout. It's littering the entirety of the Psalms. Not only is it in the Psalms, but it's in Exodus, the book that we're in. Yahweh predicts that through the plagues, he will execute judgments on all the gods of Egypt. And then Moses later on in the book of Numbers says that that's exactly what happened. Quote, Numbers Numbers 33 verse 4, quote, Yahweh executed judgments against their gods. In the Bible, there is no hint that Yahweh is the only God. So am I saying the Bible is polytheistic? Of course, absolutely not. But yes, (laughs) When God created the universe, he created two categories of persons. Now, what is a person? Uh, A person is just simply, it's not a plant, it's not an animal, it's not a mineral, it's not a machine. It is a rational being that is capable of an I-you relationship. A you-me relationship. Persons are capable of giving and receiving love. Persons are capable of knowing and being known. Persons are capable of communicating one to the other. And when God created the world, he created two orders of persons. And they, they were, they are, humans and, anybody? Angels. Humans and angels. And as you may know, based on a couple of passages in the Old Testament, it seems as though Satan was formerly an archangel, a great angel, one of the commanders of the armies of heaven who wasn't satisfied with his noble rank and he and his fellow angels, they rebelled against God. There was a great battle that ensued. Satan and his fellow angels were defeated. They were cast down from heaven to the earth where they dwell for the time being as fallen angels, aka as demons. And so here's the thing. When the Bible talks about there being many gods, that is what it is referring to. That Yahweh, he rules over a cosmos that is thick with fallen angels that are masquerading as gods. You know, all of the idol figures that you see in Mesopotamian, ancient Mesopotamia, or ancient Greece, or ancient Rome, or even today, all of the idols that one might encounter if you traveled China or traveled India, all of those are actually, in my opinion, they're real. They are real. If you were to peel back the layers, you would find underneath the surface this fundamental reality that there are fallen angels, there are demons behind these that are feasting feasting upon human worship. So we, um, it was probably about, uh, I don't know, four years ago, as part of our adult Sunday school class, we did a DVD series. It was a missionary video series called Dispatches from the Front. Many of you remember it. Extremely well done. Well, the third video in the series, uh, they went to India. And in one of the excerpts in that video, Christians took an undercover 
a camera with them, and they entered into the Hindu uh, temple that was the temple for uh, Kali. Is that how you pronounce it? K-A-L-I, Kali. And Kali is that, that uh, goddess in the, I think she's the goddess maybe of destruction in the Hindu pantheon where she has that blood red tongue that sticks out. She looks like an 80s rock band, like Kiss. <laughs> That's Kali. But she has eight arms and she's just revolting. She's sickening. And honestly, I want you to have that, that image in your mind. That, that that is behind your false gods. Something every bit as filthy and disgusting is Kali. Is behind all of the divided allegiances you know, that, are, that are trying to take you know, charge and captive of, of our hearts. And so the first word that God gives to Israel is, there shall not be for you another God before my face or in my presence. In other words, when you come into my presence, be it in the synagogue, uh, it would have been then, in the tabernacle or the temple or later the synagogue, or when you come into my presence on Sunday morning in a gymnasium, you are not to have before my face any of these disgusting, filthy, beggarly, grotesque alternatives. You cannot bring them in with you. They, they cannot be yours. You know, most of us in modernity have not woken up to the fact that when we are enslaved to sex, for example, we are worshiping a demon sex god that's every bit as disgusting as what I've described. Uh, there's another God out there. It's called the God of Mammon. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, quite simply, you cannot serve both God and Mammon. Mammon was, we think it was probably derived from the Hebrew word for wealth. But very interestingly, I thought, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, the, the great church father of the fourth century, he said, you know what Mammon is? All Mammon is is just an, another name for Belzebub. The Lord of the Flies, of Satan. That's how, that's how he said, he, he was already kind of like doing that analysis right there. Uh, and it's very, also very interesting that in the Middle Ages, Mammon was personified as a deity and it was included among the seven princes of hell. Because it's a demonic god. And there's a sex god and there's a wealth god and there's... As I suggested earlier, I really think that marriage is a good analogy for us to consider the first commandment. Suppose a husband were to come to his spouse and say, Honey, so great to see you tonight. I just want to introduce someone who's very special to me. Now, don't get me wrong. You're also very special to me too. But so is she. And I'm going to spend some time with her, but also a lot of time with you. I just want to let you know that some nights I'm going to be out with her instead of you. But don't worry because you both mean so very much to me. What would a responsible wife say in that situation? She'd smack him, right? She's not going to say, that's okay, dear. I'm just honored to be part of your life. <laughs> She's going to say, no, she is going to say, we are in a covenant, 
We are in an exclusive covenant. Our love is exclusive in our covenant. And if you were to introduce any other love, it ruins the love that we have. And, and so if, if she says, it's me or her buddy, uh, that's exactly what we'd expect her to say. And if she were to say that with a great deal of passion and force, would any of us accuse her of being unfair or intolerant? No, we would say she's being just the sort of wife she ought to be. She's angry and she's jealous because, because marriage is a relationship that demands forsaking all others. That's what we said, didn't we? When we stood up in our ceremony, forsaking all others, I take you. And that's very much what the first commandment is, uh, is pressing us to do. I want you to take note of that. The next time that you go to a wedding ceremony and you're watching, uh, just try to you know, make a mental note that God is picturing in front of you right now the first commandment. That's what's happening. And the first commandment forces us, among other things, to consider this question. What if the fundamental problem in my spiritual life is that I am not exclusively, pardon me, what if the fundamental spiritual problem in my life is that I am not exclusively devoted to him, to my, to my spouse, to him? I mean, that was why the Shema, the foundational uh, word to Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, you, is followed up by, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might and all your strength. You, it is him, him alone. And what if, I would be really satisfied if you just simply walked away from the sermon today and did a little self-analysis. What if the biggest spiritual problem in my life is I'm just not fully devoted to him? We're going to go into greater deal, detail rather ne- uh, next week on the specific forms these false gods take in our lives. That's why the second commandment is on idolatry. But as a preview, and to, and to help you over the course of this next week, there are several tests that Christians have developed down through the centuries. Kind of broad, big picture, who is my God kind of test. Or another way to put it, what am I really living for? What am I really living for? And it's not as though you've never asked yourself that question. You've asked that question before, I'm, I'm sure. It's a question, though, that needs to be re-asked with, with relative frequency. Um, because I kind of think of ourselves, we're like a, a car with the front steering, the tires. They're just out of alignment. And so we can be off in the ditch, and then we you know, make the course correction. We get back into the middle of the road, and we're doing really good in the middle of the road. And we have our hands at, what is that, 2 and 11 or or now, because the airbags are supposed to be down. I forget. It's, it's different. But, you know, we're just holding it straight. We're just holding it straight as we're headed down the road. But if we're out of alignment, we are always going to do what? To drift. And that is us. We're just always drifting from him. And that's why we have to ask a question that maybe you've asked 
20 times before in your life, but you need to ask it again. Um, what am I really living for? What is really my God? So there are three tests I'll give you. Number one, the trust test. And this is kind of from Martin Luther. Martin Luther put it this way, the trust test. He said, whatever your heart clings to, whatever your heart relies upon, whatever your heart rests in, that is properly your God. Whatever your heart clings to, whatever it relies upon, whatever it rests in, that could be alcohol, that could be exercise, it could be shopping, it could be pills, it could be whatever. Uh, it could be our, our financial security, it could be mammon, it could be, it, of course, it could just be anything. Number two, the love test. And this is from Origen in the second century. He put it this way. He said, what each one honors above all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this is for him his God. You know, what we esteem and appreciate above all other things, the love test. Um, okay, I'll use this illustration. And maybe some of you kids, because it is PG-13, you haven't seen this movie. If your parents don't let you watch PG-13 movies. But Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. I'm assuming some of you guys have uh, seen that. Have you? You can nod your heads. Yes. And, and the, the critics said that the movie really wasn't very good. I think, you know, on Rotten Tomatoes, it ended up getting a 30 or 40 percent tomato um, meter. Uh, but there was one lovable and adorable creature that we met for the very first time in the Harry Potter universe. It, is a, it was a fluffy black and long-snouted burrowing creature that had a predilection for anything glittery. What am I talking about? <laughs> it was the only redeeming part of the movie as far as I was concerned. It was the Niffler. The Niffler. The, the Niffler... Look it up if you, you, you older uh, <laughs> folks haven't seen it. The Niffler, he kind of looks like a stuffed duckbill platypus. And he's very friendly, and he was used by goblins to find lost coins. And so the characteristic feature about the soul of a Niffler is that they go after things that are glittery. They just can't resist anything that's glittery. And I don't know if Rowling intended that to be kind of a metaphor for our souls, but I thought that really does apply. Like, whatever is glittery to you, that's what you go after. That's the love test. Whatever you find most admirable and worthy. Finally, thirdly, the fear test. The general rule of thumb, it's pretty simple. We get really afraid when our gods are being threatened. And so if you trace the pathway of your fear backwards, uh, you will probably discover some type of false god at the end of your sleuthing. Uh, when we are afraid that we're going to lose what we must have to be happy, I heard one pastor say it this way. He said, listen to your emotions because your emotions are a tremendously valuable diagnostic tool to figure it out. It's the fear test. The one last thing I want to say before moving on um, to the conclusion of the sermon. Some false gods make, for, make us much more functional than others. What do I mean by that? You know, someone who worships, who worships hard work and success, 
You know, being a workaholic is a far more functional God than being an alcoholic or being a sexaholic. Uh, when people find out you're a sexaholic, that's a scandal. When people find out that you're a workaholic, you're a great target for employment, right? That there's certain gods that we serve that everybody else will even give us a pat on the back and give us an attaboy. And they, they, we're encouraged to serve those gods. And that's why the really high-functioning gods can be very hard to mask, unmask and uncover because we're, we're doing pretty well with these. Like I can make my kids, my family... That can be one of my false gods. And everybody's going to like my posts on Facebook and Instagram. And everybody's going to be asking me for parenting advice, maybe. You see what I'm saying? Uh, it's not true if I'm an alcoholic, but it is a tr- true if I'm a family-aholic. So we must be very careful about that. I don't know if that char- it should be characterized as a fourth test, the uh, you know, functional God test. But there, there you have it. Lastly, do you know what is the most common false god today? And this came, comes up in the larger catechisms. Answer. The most common false god today. I, I may not be able to prove this, but if you reflect on it, if you really reflect on this, I think you will find uh, that you, you agree with me on it. Nearly everything about the modern world, the world, this world, the iPhone world that we live in, is kind of centered, it says, do this. Draw a circle and write your name in the middle of the circle and voila, everything will orbit around you. I think there are so many levels where modernity is teaching us to worship ourselves. Draw a circle, write your name in the middle of it and voila, everything revolves around you. I find it very interesting that when Ernest Kurtz, a professor of, uh, a history professor at Harvard, he was the one who was commissioned to write a history of Alcoholics Anonymous. And do you know what he entitled the book? The, the title of that book is Not God. <laughs> Why would he title it Not God? Because the a fundamental insight underpinning the 12 steps in AA is I am not God. And you say, well, of course I'm not God. I don't think that I am God. Oh, yeah, you do. If you're like any of the rest of us, yeah, you do. Your name is in that circle, most likely. No, not the name of God. And yet he's the one who puts his name in the circle. The Father is the only God. The Son is the only God. The Holy Spirit is the only God. The one being in three persons is the only God. It's the only name that is properly put in that circle. But I think there's so much of modernity that causes us to just erase it and substitute our own. And isn't it such great news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of our transgressions of the first commandment? Like he, he suffered our failures on our behalf to forgive our transgressions of this commandment, which are, which are so numerous. And the most common one I would say is that we worship ourselves. Finally, uh, the thing about the—I'll conclude with this. The, the thing about the trust test, the love test, the fear test, the functional God test is, is at the end of the day, insight—I don't think this—insight doesn't lead necessarily to healing. Insight does not equal healing. You can have 
insight into what's wrong with you. But does that fix you? No, it doesn't. Like, you have to have something more that fixes you. And uh, I think there's this famous sonnet that was written by John Donne, the great was he, 16th century English poet. One of his most famous sonnets. How many of you have read this one? Three-person God, batter my heart. That's the title of it. Three-person God, batter my heart. Like, beat my heart. Strike my heart. Hit me. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Just the excerpt at at the end. Listen to the end of this. Because I think this is so much of the solution. He says, Dearly I love you, and I would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. That is, I am engaged to a false god. Divorce me. Untie or break that knot again. Take me to you. Imprison me. For I, except you enthrall me, shall never be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Think how powerful that language is. The poet is asking God to ravish him ravish me, seize me, like carry me off by force. You stick me on the back of your horse and carry me off into the, into the sunset. He says, the only way I will be devoted to you is if you ravish me. And I think, what a great way to pray. Like, Lord Jesus, ravish me with your love. Divorce me from my bad lovers and be the great lover of my heart so that I divorce these other gods. And, and that's the way I think we'll keep the first commandment is, is to have Christ just so pour his love into us that it breaks all of our affections for everything inferior. Amen.